This is another device we found on the boat. A garage called for strangulation! We, we don't know what this is all about, but we believe it to be some sort of torturing device! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 25 and 26, which begin with the Nord slipping out into the dark of night, and they end with Helen getting nowhere with the Elders. We ended last episode with the bow of a ship slipping into view, and as we get into this clip, we see that it is the Nord, on this rather small and, dare I say, unimpressive vessel. Yeah, reminds me of, and I'm pretty sure we've made this reference before, the whole TIE Fighters out in space thing. Mm -hmm. They're too small to go that far from a larger ship. We have made that reference before. I think it applies here. He's not going all that far to something larger. That ship has no permanent mast. He's going to have to put up the mast physically in order to get anywhere. He's standing up to row it, which is not a good position. And there's very little shelter to speak of. So if not for the people hanging around outside the atoll gates in their tiny little boats with even less of a setup than here, I would be very unlikely to believe that people are looking at him thinking, oh yeah, he's totally going back out to sea. Yeah, I don't know why he is getting away so easily that people aren't suspicious of him. Yeah. Our introduction to him was him asking questions, mm -hmm. and that should arouse suspicion in and of itself. And then he leaves in the dead of night in such an unopen sea worthy vessel. Not only is he leaving in the dead of night, but there has been a cry raised about oh no perhaps there is a smoker spy among us if you are worried about smoker spies why are you letting anybody leave and we will see in the next scene it's because they thoroughly believe they have their man that's very true there's no question about the mariner being a spy in fact most of the arguments against him are that he is a spy not that he's a mutant mm -hmm. they care about that yes but only as far as is required to blame him for everything else. And as usual, the fair-haired, blue-eyed man gets to slip by on charm alone. His smirk as he sails by. Now, obviously, we need to talk about the fact that he taunts the Mariner by showing off that he has gotten his hands on the Mariner's boots. And that's a whole thing in and of itself. But then that smirk he does, where it's like the whole side of his face pulls up in this awful grin. I think it's quite spectacular. Wouldn't it have been hilarious if the boots didn't fit him? <laughs> if they were just too small? That would have made my day. <laughs> he had to cut the toe off or something yeah. like that? Yeah. I got a I... real problem with shoes that cut the toes <laughs> off, and then they got the feet popping out the front. I don't know. Yeah. That just weirds me out. And the smirk is certainly for the boots, yes, 
but also because the Mariner is taking the blame for what the Nord is. Mm-hmm. The Nord gets to leave, and the Mariner is in a cage. The Mariner didn't do anything wrong, and the Nord is the spy. He might as well be singing a little shanty about, oh, I'm a spy, diddly dee, as he <laughs> paddles his way out of the atoll. You brought it up a second ago, but I want to readdress it, how awkward the standing up rowing thing is. It's I know so there's bad. the idea of paddle boarding, where you're standing on a wide board and you've got a paddle, you know, but that's not what he's doing. He is double rowing, mm-hmm. he's double fisting it, and it's just awkward. Paddle boarding, you're holding a canoe paddle. And you're able to use your torso and both arms to push into the water. But what he's doing is so awkward because, yeah, you've got the oarlocks and that creates your fulcrum point. But the way he's got to do this wide stance thing and then he's got a lot of shoulder. It just. mm. Yeah. Part of rowing, most of the power comes from your legs. Mm -hmm. And that's facilitated by sitting down. That's why rowboats don't go too fast is because. You're stuck on the immovable bench. Yeah. But the team rowing boats get a ton of speed because their seats slide back and forth. Yeah. It just seems very awkward. And maybe it's a small space maneuvering thing. Yeah. That he doesn't want to go that fast. He wants to have maneuverability. So maybe it's better standing up. Because he's got to do something until he gets out of the atoll. Yeah. I just don't like it. I don't like the standing rowing. <laughs> There's a lot to not like about the Nord here, but the way he insists on moving his vehicle, it bothers me. Another nice detail is how the atoll gates haven't opened all the way just far enough to let him slip out, yeah. like we talked about the first time. He must have negotiated this exit beforehand, and maybe surreptitiously. Maybe he paid that one guy to open the gate when he came up to it because you're right under the current circumstances it does seem like the safest thing is to not let anybody leave but right now everybody else is in the town meeting and outside the town meeting is pretty quiet and he goes mostly unobserved Mm -hmm. so i'm willing to bet he paid off that guy who yelled out open the gate yeah, because for how big the atoll is geographically, I'm looking at the exterior shot of the gathering hall, and I could very much believe that everybody who lives in that atoll, except for the few folks that are on lookout, are in that building. Mm-hmm. Now, before we go inside that building, because we're about to have a very spectacular scene, I want to do a quick actor introduction, because we've seen the Commerce Elder a couple of times, but we haven't gotten to know his actor. So he is played by Zito Kazan. His IMDb top four are this movie... Robin Hood Men in Tights, where he played the head Serracian guard. He was in Red Dawn as a political officer, and he was in 13 Days, starring Kevin Costner as a Chilean delegate. Zito Kazan was born September 1st, 1944, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, as Zito Kaplansky. He studied at the Otto Krauss University and played professional basketball in the National League, while at the same time performing in theatrical productions in Buenos Aires. The theater soon became his paramount muse, and he relocated to New York to pursue his promise. While studying on scholarship at the Neighborhood Playhouse, Zito found a home in the theater, and after appearing on Broadway with such esteemed performers as Ingrid Bergman, film and TV lured him to Los Angeles. His IMDb acting credits show him entering the TV and film world with a two-episode run on the NBC detective drama Ironside, 
as well as a bit part in Robert Ellis Miller's The Girl from Petrovka, both in 1974. With 86 acting credits listed on his filmography, Kazan's most recent appearance is in 2013's Crosshairs, directed by Nick Lentz. He's had quite a career. Yeah, coming from Argentina up to New York and then making it big on the stage and then the successful transition over to Los Angeles. It's pretty good. Yeah. So he has worked with Kevin Costner before. You mentioned something else that he was in with Kevin Costner. Waterworld and 13 Days are both Kevin Costner. And then looking for any other Kevin Costner movies that stick out to me. 13 Days. Was that the one that you said in your biography? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I don't see any others as I go through the list. But like most actors in the 80s, he was in such shows as Knight Rider and Chips and the Columbo spinoff, Mrs. Columbo. Mrs. Columbo? Yep. I am more offended by that ridiculous name than by the fact that there was a spinoff. Oh, there was a TV short in 1978 called Space Force. I wonder if the Steve Carell vehicle that released recently knew about that. But he was also on the Six Million Dollar Man and MASH in the 70s, so he did the TV run. Yeah. But here, he is the one that we've dubbed the Commerce Elder, and as we cut inside this meeting hall, we get to see that he is in full swing for a presentation showing the Atollers all of the nefarious items that they found on the Mariner's Trimaran. He has gone full scuttle from mm -hmm. Little Mermaid. He's just making it up. And there's definitely a pop culture jab with the Thighmaster. <laughs> that it is indeed some sort of torture device. I know that post-apocalyptic people not understanding things from the modern world is a trope. We've seen it before in the Mad Max movies with... The Waiting Ones, them not fully understanding what they're looking at. And despite it being a trope, it's probably one of my favorites of the genre. Granted, you can do it incorrectly when it's really obnoxious, like in the Mortal Engines movie, and they're like, oh no, these minions from Despicable Me are ancient American deities. And the main character's like, yeah, they developed screens, and then we think they lost the ability to read. Like, that's just obnoxious. <laughs> but here it's fun because it's theater. Yeah, he's almost like a lawyer making his case. Mm -hmm. So he is spinning things to work in his favor. Speaking of spinning things, the yo-yo, I did a little bit of research about history. I didn't do a ton of note copying, but I found it interesting that a Greek vase painting from 440 BC shows a boy playing with a yo-yo. And they estimate that the yo-yo was invented in 500 BC. Because yo-yo is just a couple of the basic machines put together, right? Yeah, you get two discs on either side around an axle, and then a string is attached to the axle, and, and then that's, that's it. it. It's a pulley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's an insanely basic toy, and the fact that the Atollers couldn't figure out what it does, or its purpose, or that it was a toy for amusement, is kind of dumb. Well... They're painting everything they find with the brush that the man who owns them is a spy. And so they're interpreting it as, okay, how would a spy use this device? And so obviously if you've got a tiny axle covered by two discs, of course it's going to be a garrote cord. Because what else would a spy use it for? 
Right. And they're looking at everything through the lens that they already assume he's a spy. Right. They're not looking at the stuff like, huh, I wonder what this stuff is. Somebody who wasn't prejudiced against him would take the yo-yo, having the disc part in your hand, it makes sense to wrap the cord around it. And then you're halfway there to figuring out what it does. Mm. But they're not curious. They've made assumptions. They think they know already. They even may know that they're wrong, especially with the clarinet. That one was just bad. You look at a clarinet, the mouthpiece looks like a mouthpiece. It wants your mouth put on it. And all you have to do is blow and sound is going to come out. Mm -hmm. And again, you're halfway there to figuring out what it does. It does not look like a listening device. So I think that he might know that he is making bad assumptions, but he is making the case he wants to make. Well, that's the problem with this situation, because we can't definitively say, yes, they know what this is. No, they don't know what this is. I certainly didn't know a lot about the Thighmaster going into this. I've seen the commercials with Suzanne Summers for sure, but I couldn't necessarily say exactly why it's a big thing. I read an article from a fitness blog that concluded after a week of using the Thighmaster for 20 minutes a day that while it doesn't do anything, what it does offer is a chance for you to sit for 20 minutes and almost meditate while you're flexing your legs together. Well, if you're flexing muscles, then it's doing something. And they have those machines at gyms. Yeah, the blog included a portion where the writer was talking to their personal trainer. Yeah. And the personal trainer was like, no, this is bad. This is <laughs> not good. Yeah, the thing about the machine at the gym is that it's actually set up properly to work the muscles correctly. So the Thighmaster was invented in Sweden by then-physical medicine intern, later Dr. Anne-Marie Benstrom, as the V-Bar physical therapy device. It later received U.S. design patent number 343882S as, quote, physical exerciser, end quote. It achieved commercial success when marketed under the Thighmaster name by Joshua Reynolds, often erroneously credited as the inventor. I take issue with the name Thighmaster because it only works one set of muscles, and apparently not very effectively. All it does is work the interior thigh muscles. Well, there are a lot of muscles on your thighs, and yeah. that's why you go to the gym where they have the whole spread. You are not going to master your thighs by working one set of muscles. You're more likely to master your thighs by doing squats. Yeah. At the end of the day, that's what you're looking at. <laughs> it's like kitchen gadgets. Mm -hmm. Like You can have a gadget that does one individual thing, but then to have the tools you need, you're going to end up with a bazillion gadgets. This is a gadget. The clarinet has a much longer history as far as what I found. So the clarinet has its roots in the early single reed instruments of hornpipes used in ancient Greece, ancient Egypt, the Middle East, and Europe since the Middle Ages. The modern clarinet developed from a Baroque instrument called the shalamo. This instrument was similar to a recorder with a single reed mouthpiece and a cylindrical bore. Around the turn of the 18th century, the shalamo was modified by converting one of its keys into a register key, to produce the first clarinet. The development is usually attributed to German instrument maker Johann Christoph Denner, though some have suggested that his son Jacob Denner was the inventor. The instrument played well in the middle register with a loud, shrill sound, so it was given the name clarinetto, meaning little trumpet. 
Original Denner clarinets had two keys and could play a chromatic scale, but various makers added more keys to get improved tuning, easier fingerings, and a slightly larger range. If the atollers figured out that you put the one end in your mouth and blow, I forgot about the reed. The reed would be long gone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they could blow through it, but not really any sound is going to come out. It's just going to be a wind sound. It's not going to be a note or a tone. Looking at the Commerce Elder holding up the clarinet, it looks like it still has the mouthpiece on it. The reed, like you said, is long deteriorated, but we're not looking at a simple round opening for sound to go into it. So you'd have to break off that mouthpiece if you wanted to use it as a listening device. And I'm a little surprised that the Commerce Elder didn't do that ahead of time just to make a better argument. Okay, well, first of all, it screws off. Oh, okay, there you go. The clarinet screws into like three or four pieces. I think it's four pieces. My sister and my mom played the clarinet. For the Mariner to have found the clarinet as is, assuming he didn't find it in a box in its case and put it together himself, assuming that he found it like this, it had to have been in use when it was abandoned. Oh, going back to our assumption that he found all of this stuff at a ski resort, I feel bad for the kid whose parents forced them to bring their clarinet to the ski resort so that while they're oh. on vacation, the kid has to keep practicing the clarinet. Oh, I assumed it was entertainment provided by a ski resort. I guess. <laughs> I just would not want to patronize a ski resort whose idea of lodge entertainment is an a orchestra? full orchestra. Or a quintet of some kind. Like a woodwind quartet? Yeah. Would I prefer a string quartet? It also could have been an orchestra on tour. That's very true. Like if he swam across a bus full of orchestrated remains. (laughs) That was a weird way to describe it. There are also performing arts centers in towns that have high elevations. That's true. (laughs) Like we know we're supposed to go to Denver eventually in the movie, right? Yeah. Well, how many performing arts centers are in Denver? They probably have their own orchestra. They probably have multiple of their own orchestras. So... I don't think it's a stretch (laughs) for him to have found a clarinet. I think it's sad if he found it put together. Because a player would never just leave their clarinet put together. When you're done with it, you clean it, you take care of it, and you put it away. I'm also a little bit surprised, I guess, that this analog style of music hasn't stuck around. Because cruise ships have plenty of instruments. Mm -hmm. They have a whole set of live bands that play. Multiples. So it's odd that musical instruments that don't need any mechanical features, they don't need fuel, haven't stuck around. Yeah. They do need repairing. And wind instruments need wood Mm -hmm. for the reeds. I guess that would, over time, kind of rule out wind instruments. But like horns, they don't need anything. Yeah, if they're properly treated, they could probably resist corrosion. To say nothing of stringed instruments, if you know how to make strings out of sinews and things like that, yeah, we saw an episode of Hannibal where right. they talked know... about how you can make cello strings out of cat gut. And human gut. Mm-hmm. Why not out of fishy fibers? Why not? Have or a... human gut. Yeah, that too. So your point as to why people have not continued with instruments is a mystery to me. I think we're actually going to answer that mystery next week. Okay. 
But getting back into the situation here, everybody in the hall is thoroughly freaked out by the Commerce Elder's presentation because he has effectively scared them. And the Population Elder sitting up at the top of the table has decided that the evidence speaks for itself and that they need to get rid of the Mariner as soon as possible. And the only dissenting voice is Helen. Throughout this entire presentation argument that Helen has with the council, I distinctly get the vibe that she's kind of always the one that stands up and says something and that they have to fight with her about it, Mm -hmm. which is not a good stereotype, but there's nothing wrong with having opinions and not being afraid to voice those opinions. Everybody else in this room is mob mentality. So... It's a shame that there's only one person who's like, wait, no, I have a different opinion. Let me talk. There really ought to be more people who are able to resist that mob mentality. And it's a real shame that there aren't. And Helen is being quite sensible saying, okay, why not use him? And the Glasses Elder rebuts that by saying that the Mariner is a threat to the safety and purity of the Atoll. Now, I want to go through both parts of that. So safety. Perhaps. I'm not willing to completely rule out that having the Mariner there will not draw undue attention, because we know that slavers exist in this world, and the whole idea of a slaver is you go out and you find individuals that you can enslave and then sell to a specific person for a specific thing, whether that be labor or other tasks. I kind of painted myself into a corner by saying labor as the first specific thing, but if the slavers caught wind that there is someone who can breathe underwater, that sounds to me like the kind of person that can fetch a really high price on the slave markets. Agreed. I don't think he's inherently a danger, but their treatment of him has made him a danger, which is what the enforcer indicates that they turned him into a danger. Because you could say he's not only a safety hazard because he could draw people in, but he could also hurt someone else in the atoll. But he's already demonstrated he only hurts people that hurt him first. Right. He's a defensive character. He is. And from their point of view, I suppose I need to give them the benefit of the doubt, play devil's advocate a little bit, throw some more metaphors in there for fun. From their point of view, they don't know science. They don't know biology. So... They have a mutant in front of them. Well, what else is mutant about him? Could his behaviors, could his way of thinking be different? Mm -hmm. They don't know, and they are afraid of that. The one way that I can think of to prevent the Mariner as a outsider mutant from A, hurting anybody else in the Atoll, or drawing undue attention to the Atoll by his presence, is letting him go exiling him from the atoll, telling him he can never come back to this specific atoll. Boom, he's out of your hair. You're done. Right. But that doesn't address their second concern. Which is purity. Which is, well, what I meant was that he is a spy. Oh. They can't let a spy go. But as far as the purity of their atoll, the best way to prevent that is, once again, exile him from the atoll. Don't have him breed with your women. Right. Like, you guys control... The breeding. Yeah. So he already refused your offer. What else is there to worry about the purity about? And as Helen points out, he's in a cage. He's not going to impregnate any women in a cage. Mm -hmm. And even though he did kill one of the Atollers, 
the enforcer already pointed out that was in self-defense. And so when the population elder turns to the enforcer and says, is he dangerous or not? I'm a little surprised that the enforcer says, I'd say he is now. Yeah, I was a little bit disappointed that he didn't continue to stand up for the Mariner on that point. Yeah. Because he did so earlier without any hesitation. He didn't hem and haw about it. It was a matter of fact. He killed in self-defense. And now that self-defense is nowhere to be seen. I think the enforcer has been swayed by the Commerce Elder's presentation. And also to his point that he is dangerous now, it doesn't really matter that it was in self-defense anymore. You have now made a angry captive of this man who has the ability to kill. Mm -hmm. It no longer matters that it was in self-defense. Now you have somebody on your hands that if you did let him go, would he come back for retribution? He can swim underwater indefinitely. We don't really know that yet, but you can exile him from the atoll. You can not open the gates for him, but we know that that won't make a difference. Mm -hmm. If he wanted to exact revenge, he could just swim under all by himself. One of the counter arguments that Helen raises against the Mariner being a spy is that he brought all of this dirt. She says the likes of which we haven't seen since Enola came. So there is a story there with Enola and dirt. Yeah. We're going to hear that later. Oh, we are? Yeah. Okay, good, because... That was quite the little teaser there. And I really want to know more about Enola, how she came to be, and apparently she arrived with dirt. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good point. If you have a spy, why would the spy come with so much dirt that he would just willingly hand over and then try to leave without? Yeah. So perfect example is the actual spy just came in under the radar, nice and calm. He kept things quiet. He quietly asked questions. He didn't pay exorbitant prices for information. He came and went without anybody really noticing that there was anything amiss. So why on earth would the Mariner, if he was a spy, come in and just, boom, I'm here. Everybody pay attention to me. And then try and leave just as quickly. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Because... The Nord's behavior, that's how you spy. If you remember Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, Strider is in the Prancing Pony or whatever that place was called, and he was keeping a low profile. He was sitting in the corner. He had his hood over his head. He was smoking a pipe. No one was really noticing him because he was keeping a low profile. If Strider had walked into there, opened up his coin purse, and started flashing around how much money he had, everybody would know that Strider was there. Yeah. If you're keeping a low profile, you don't come in like Rich Uncle Moneybags from the Monopoly game. The Mariner's behavior was clearly one of, I have something super valuable, I want supplies, and I want to leave. Yeah, like every other trader on Waterworld. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing mysterious about his behavior was where he got all the dirt. Mm -hmm. And back when he was trading it, someone accused him of getting it by nefarious and murderous methods, and they weren't that bothered by it. Yeah. The whole, where did you get it? Got it from an atoll. Heard the smokers hit the atoll. Yeah, that's why the people of the atoll didn't say where they got the dirt. It was swept under the rug. Yeah, nobody really cared. They were more interested in the dirt. Which is usually swept under a rug anyway. So <laughs> that works. Helen brings up the idea that maybe this dirt came from dry land, and I love the groan that sweeps through this room, including from the preamp, 
who leans his head back in his chair, almost rolls it, and he says, oh, don't start. And they're so tired of it already. Definitely paints a picture of life on this atoll for Helen and with Helen. Always going on about dry land this and dry land that. Ugh. I'm of two minds because I know as the viewer that she's right and that she should fight for these things. She should fight for dry land. She should fight for the Mariner. But on the other hand, I can't imagine being a resident and constantly hearing her speaking up in meetings about dry land mm-hmm. and being annoyed by it. So I really can see both sides. As a first time viewer, I can imagine it's much easier to be on the side of the atollers because everything we've seen so far is it's just water. We walk into a movie called Water World, the Universal logo floods completely and does not leave any island looking formations on it so as far as a first-time viewer is concerned yeah there is no dry land and she needs to shut up about it but the observant viewer who has seen a movie or two before would obviously say well why would they bring it up if it's not going to be relevant to the plot later on and as you said anybody who's seen a movie if the world is covered with water, then the point of the movie is to find some place that's not covered with water. Just like in Mad Max, if the world is all dried up, the point of the movie is to find water. If there is no fuel, then the point of the movie is to find fuel. Mm-hmm. So The banker pipes up. He's off on the side of the room, and he says that he came from the West, I can tell you. He can tell because the Mariner said 30 horizons west of here. Oh, right. Or he east did. of here or something okay. like that. Okay. Whatever direction he said. Yeah, because Mariner told him he came from the West. Gave him that information. Okay, which many, many people heard. Yeah. He wasn't alone with the banker. I kind of assumed that it was something about the dirt. (laughs) (laughs) He could taste that, oh, this is Western dirt. Yeah, because all over the world, dirt is different. Mm -hmm. Crime shows all the time run an analysis on the dirt and can tell you exactly where the crime happened. Yeah. I'm not quite sure where the matriarch comes up with smokers come from there, from the West. So my thing about directions is that they are relative. Yeah. Especially East and West, because that's the access that our world and our sense of geography is based on, is East and West, Mm -hmm. as we spin the globe. So to say something is in the West just means that we're to the East of it. If we were to the West of it, we would say East. It's relative. So in a world where there is one feature, there is one mountain above water and everything else is water, directions don't make any difference. Yeah. The sun is still going to rise in the east and set in the west, which is why when the, spoiler alert, smokers attack the atoll and first thing in the morning, the smokers attack coming out of the sun, they're attacking from the east. They're not coming from the west. So (laughs) terms like out of the sun and into the sun make so much more sense in East and West. They really do. The Glasses Elder jumps off of what the matriarch says. Oh, but if he is a spy, this ichthy man will give away our position, our weaknesses. Okay, so the phrase... What what word did you say? The phrase ichthy man. Yeah, what, what is that? I didn't even hear that when I was watching the minute. What the heck is that? Ichthy is a... British prefix, a variant form of ichthyo, which I believe is Greek, denoting fish. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's, he's a fishy man. Yeah, the Greek word is ichthus. So the study of fishes would be ichthyology. Okay. 
he certainly means it in a derogatory manner, but by its very nature is not derogatory. Yeah, he's trying to be overly technical because it's Gregor who later on in this movie refers to the Mariner as an ichthyosapien, basically, you know, yeah, like, fish a, man. like a fish man. And the Glasses Elder is convinced that if he says ichthy man instead of fishy man, it would be better for his reputation. But what I take issue with is them saying that the Mariner will give away their position and their weaknesses when, as we've seen earlier in this movie, that's what traders do when they meet out on the open water. Like the drifter said, I don't need to trade. I got all the stuff I need from an atoll eight days west of here. Yeah. Atolls are not secret places. You can't hide them. And yeah, it's a big world. It's a big ocean coming across one. If you don't know it's there, it's not that hard to miss. But on the other hand, it's a trade system of knowledge as well as supplies. Mm -hmm. Everybody talks to everybody else because that's the only way that anyone's going to survive is by sharing information about where the atolls are. It's not a secret. If they were really worried about keeping their position and weaknesses private, they would not let anybody inside those walls. Yeah. They would only do exterior trades. Helen is remaining adamant about, well, what if he isn't a spy? And the Cobber's Elder fires back that he is still a Muto. At the end of the day, that is what he is. That is all he will ever be. And that is what they need to focus on more so than him being a spy. It's like a lawyer in a court case. Who's like, okay, this is my defense. Oh, wait, it's not working. I'm going to pivot and have a completely different defense. Mm -hmm. One defense is falling apart, so they just switch to the other. Helen has done a pretty good job of raising doubt. I don't think she's necessarily disproved that he's a smoker spy, but she's definitely stonewalled them and forced them to run around enough that they are definitely switching gears. Yeah. She's successfully made the case that... He could have information, so let's not kill him so fast. Mm -hmm. Let's use him instead. But as a Muto, they want him dead. Right. On that note, we're going to wrap things up for today. We are going to come back next week to see the meeting continue to devolve into disorder as Helen refuses to back down and the elders begin to turn on her. And we also get to catch up with the Mariner. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 13. See you next time.